Patty, you Johnny. know I had. All right, I'm just going to blow right past that. <laughs> you know, I had a circuitous career path before I became a radio producer, right? Mm-hmm. And well, actually, we both had really weird journeys to getting here. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good way to put it. Uh, before I became a writer, I worked ski patrol. That was an awesome job. I also uh, I sold fancy lady underwears at a fancy lady boutique. Uh, that was a very anxiety provoking job. I also was basically like the personal maid to a bajillion chickens, which is essentially a nice way of saying that I swept up piles and piles of chicken poo-poo. Also, they were rescue chickens, but this none of this stopped me from actually eating chicken. <laughs> that would have been the first thing <laughs> I think nom, I nom, nom, would chicken, have chicken, taken nom, away nom, from nom, that. Nom, 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 nom. Okay. <laughs> so... One of the jobs I had was copywriting for web content. So I did it for a couple different companies. And I brought this up because I think it made me a lot more suspect by the way words are thrown around just to drive online traffic. Mm -hmm. So I would get the most mundane topics and I'd have to basically cram a whole bunch of adjectives and superlatives and buzzwords together. Like this is a made up example, mainly because I don't want to be mean to people who gave me work when I really needed it. Good call. I would get an assignment about a company releasing a pretty basic product, but I would have to write something like, this product is redefining the personal care industry and it will fulfill all of your hashtag beauty goals. What? <laughs> no way. I yeah, I did stuff like that. I, I helped create like memes. That. I, I know, it's very out of character. So um, you ruined and sullied the internet. Thank you very much. It was much. already, I just helped it. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I think that that job is one of the reasons that today there are some words I have a hard time taking seriously when I see them online. Oh, God, yes. Yeah, like um, authenticity mm-hmm. or content mm-hmm. or hashtag blessed. Like, don't take a photo of your quinoa salad and use hashtag blessed. You're not blessed. You're just eating. That's not what you use blessed for. That seemed to trigger a nerve for you. Rant over. (laughs) So I feel the same way about some of those. Uh The particular word I had in mind for today's episode is redefined. Because, yeah, normally I pass over stories that use that word as part of their headlines. Um, It just feels overused to me. I mean, Mm. I use that word all the time in my headlines. So now if I'm going to take that word seriously... My personal like threshold is it better be attached to a legit hard news story, okay. like when the kilogram was redefined. What's a kilogram? Oh, Patty. <laughs> and I think our guest today actually did manage to cut through the overuse and misuse of that word. He did something special with a concept most of our listeners are familiar with, adventure. Very true. Pals, today we're talking to professional adventurer and author Alistair Humphreys. His adventure resume is insane. But it also features some unexpectedly normal things. And Alistair has what I think is a curious reason for all of that. I believe you can live adventurously without going on adventures. Huh? What in the H-E double tube socks does that mean? Well, get ready to investigate, pals. I'm Patty O'Connell. And I'm Elizabeth Nakano. Welcome to Safety Third, a show about ideas how we come to believe in them.
I'm wondering why I'm not calling you on the moon right now. Well, I applied to be an astronaut, but I failed the intelligence test. That is a is a genuine answer. Sir? No, I do <laughs> um, not believe that. Yeah, I promise no you, the, the European Space Agency opened it up to the public for the first time ever. And I thought, man, I've got to have a go at this, even though I knew full well I would fail. But I just thought everyone's got to apply to be an astronaut. <laughs> I, I literally, I've never thought that about myself ever. Like, you know what you should do today? Astronaut. <laughs> Though Alistair never became an astronaut, he has accomplished some pretty out-of-this-world stuff. You see what I did there, E? Yep. He spent four <laughs> years on a bike pedaling over 46,000 miles. He walked across India. He ran 150 miles in the Sahara Desert. He pack-rafted Iceland. He rode the English Channel. My adventures have really split into two categories. There's been the wil- chasing wilderness, so rowing across the Atlantic Ocean, crossing Iceland, where you're not seeing anyone for days and weeks, and that's about self-sufficiency and wildness and all that sort of stuff. And then there are the human journeys, like cycling around the world and walking across India, where you're immersed amongst a billion people and all of their crazy stories and the energy and the madness and chaos and happiness of walking along a big river in India. One morning, for example, I was in a very, very poor area in Tamil Nadu and uh, I was following a river the whole way and down at the river there were lots of um, women were washing clothes and the men were bathing and this man saw me and he said, ah, oh, come and have a look at my house and he took me off to his house in a little village and he wanted to show me that he'd planted a small row of flowers outside his home. He was very poor and it was really just... 10 or so flowers but he was so proud of them and I I love the fact that he will never see me again I'll never see him again but I really enjoy those brief moments when your paths cross I think that aspect of travel is something that uh, is very different from the wild epic testosterone type adventures and I think there's a place in life for a bit of both of them mm-hmm. I think the recurring lesson I've had from four years on the bike walking across India, journeys that revolve around the kindness of people you meet, is just how welcome I felt pretty much everywhere I've been. The initial nervousness and perhaps even preconceptions and inbuilt prejudices of the world really get blown away once you start travelling extremely slowly and vulnerably through a different country. And the cycling trip and then walking across India have made me just feel very relaxed about being pretty much anywhere in the world and assured that nearly everyone you meet is just a good, nice, kind, normal, decent person like nearly everyone you meet in your hometown. And and that's really opened up the world to me as being somewhere where I pretty much would feel comfortable anywhere. Alistair's epic adventures were fulfilling. They made him feel accomplished for sure. But he noticed an intriguing reaction from the outdoor community. After years of effort, I was just making my living out of adventures, which is the dream come true. And essentially, I was doing that by a model of once a year, go do something really big, write a book about it, do some talks, earn up money, and then next year, go do something big. Right. I did these sort of big trips for years. And I was starting to notice from people reading my blogs or my books or coming to my talks, that there were a lot of people saying... I'd love to go do big adventures like you do, but yeah. but I can't because I haven't got the time, I haven't got the money, I don't have the perceived expertise or equipment, I've got a job, yeah. I've got to feed my cat, all these sort of things. So I realized then that 
what these big adventures that we all love hearing about, really that's just vicarious adventure. And I started to think that there must be a way that my life didn't have to be either big adventure time or stuck behind a desk trying to pay for it time. There must be some way to take some of those good bits and incorporate them into real life. Not on the same scale, of course, but enough to scratch the itch. Yeah. People read about cycling around the world or rowing the Atlantic because it's fun to read, not because it's actually something that's ever going to be relevant to most people's lives. Right. So yeah. I decided what I wanted to try and do was take the things that I'd loved from big adventures mm -hmm. um, and all the joys and experiences and learnings that I got from big stuff and see if I could somehow distill the essence of that down to something that was achievable to break down the barriers that stop so-called normal people having more adventures and to see if it was possible to have adventure within normal, real daily life. Right. 99% of people who love the outdoors and adventure are not climbing the dawn wall uh, in their underpants. <laughs> and rather than just shouting at them saying, oh, don't be so pathetic, just sell your house and go cycle around the world. A more useful answer, I felt, was to say, okay, so you don't have enough time to walk across India. Why don't you walk a lap of your house at a radius of two miles? That will lead to a 15-mile journey. If you sleep out in a wood or under the stars along the way, it'll feel like a small adventure. And I can guarantee you that in that two-mile radius of a circle, you will see things that you've never seen before in your life. Uh -huh. When you finish work one day in the office, instead of heading home to watch TV, head out of town with your friends or your work colleagues or on your own, sleep under the stars in the morning, run back down the hill, get back on the train or in your car, back into the town, back to your desk for nine o'clock the next morning. Looking a bit sleep deprived and disheveled perhaps, but at least having genuinely had an adventurous and memorable experience within the framework of the working week. Right. The hardest part of getting anyone to do an adventure is to get them to get out of their front door right. and begin to commit to doing something. And people are always saying, oh, one day I'd love to do this. One day I'd love to do that. So I thought, why don't we do a one-day adventure? The idea for micro-adventures was born. These are simple, achievable excursions. Alistair promoted and documented all of the ones he was doing on his Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And he encouraged his audience to go out for mini-exploits too. The initial idea was to do one a month, starting from a tiny, tiny little thing. And the first small thing was so small, which was get out of your house early in the morning, get on a train at your local station to about, let's say, 30 miles away or whatever distance you can manage, and then turn around and cycle back home. A small, achievable thing that will still take you to places you've never been before. And most importantly, overcomes some inertia, gets you some confidence and some momentum and hopefully makes you think, hey, that was quite cool. Next weekend, I'm going to go do something a bit bigger. Yeah. You can be an explorer a couple of miles away from home. Doing big adventures, I think, is a wonderful thing for the individual who does it. So I'd encourage anyone to go do big adventures. And they had a huge personal impact on my life. But I was often conscious when I was, for example, cycling around the world for four years, I was thinking, man, I could be doing something a bit more useful with my life. You're not exactly saving the planet yeah. uh, when you're just off on a big <laughs> solo expedition. So it felt quite a selfish existence. And micro-adventures are not changing the world, but they are connecting with people and encouraging more people to be a bit bolder and to get out into the outdoors. And I think that's the reason I've kept pursuing it now is because it actually feels like adventure 
with purpose, which is the sort of thing that I've always strived to do, but struggled to find within the world of conventional adventures. In 2011, Alistair dedicated an entire year to micro-adventures. Now, these mini outdoor pursuits weren't far-flung epics. Rather, they were bite-sized fun close to home. Like, he literally just jumped into a river next to his house and swam around. And he signed up for trail races near his hometown. His online fans followed along, giving feedback about what they liked or didn't, or offering suggestions. And it turns out, one of their favorite micro-adventures of Alistair's was a walk. There's a big road that goes around London in a big circle. It's called the M25. Uh And, you know, every city has this that goes around the city. It's full of traffic. Everyone hates it. It's full of commuters. And it goes through ugly, boring commuter land. So I decided to walk a lap of the M25 motorway, essentially walking a lap of London. And when I tell British people about this, they just roll their eyes and go, oh, man, you're crazy to be doing that. And it took me a week to do. So that was definitely the epic extreme end of micro-adventures. But what I noticed on that was I just kept thinking time and again, this is exactly the same as cycling around the world. A bit shorter, perhaps, and quite silly, but still, it's a journey. It's a challenge. I'm seeing things I've never seen before. I'm meeting kind, interesting people, just like I would do in Inner Mongolia. This is an adventure, a small one, a micro-adventure. And that, that was the, the one that really made me think, yeah, this is actually a good idea. What are some of the things that you saw that you had never seen before during that M25 walk? On the simple scale, it was uh, taking me to towns that I'd never been to before, with good reason, because most of them are not that interesting. Yeah. What delighted me happened in a really boring little commuter town just outside London. Uh, I did this with a friend. The two of us British stereotype decided to cheer ourselves up in a pub and we were sitting in a pub with our huge big hiking packs hiking poles we look completely out of context in this commuter town and a couple they must have heard us talking and they came over to us and said hey don't sleep out in the snow tonight because that will be miserable come to stay in our house tonight just as happens all over the world so just a couple of random people home from work took us in and we had to leave early in the morning because they had to go back into London for work. But I loved that experience. Um, Later on in the walk, I was updating the walk via Twitter. (laughs) And at one point, really early in the morning, this guy comes bicycling down the road shouting, Al, Al, are you Al? Are you Al? And he'd come out on his bike to try and find me because he knew from Twitter that I was somewhere nearby. And he'd come out to find us, to take us back to his home. And he'd cooked this huge big pan of sausages for us for breakfast. So, I mean, that's a a great little travel anecdote, the sort of thing that normally happens on people's proper adventures around the world. So so I really enjoyed that part of it as well. Mm -hmm. It was teaching me to change the way I look at things and to realise that everywhere is interesting. In between the towns, there are still small pockets of wilderness and beauty small little woods it might only be a wood 200 meters across but if you sleep in the middle of that and you listen carefully there's birdsong and there's foxes and there is wilderness and wildness so it was more teaching me just to learn to look differently and to see the opportunities for nature and adventure rather than just bemoaning the fact that oh i'm in boring suburbia i wish i was in alaska alistair tagged these mini pursuits online using hashtag microadventures and it took off. People from as far away as Japan started to send videos and anecdotes to Alistair, and in 2012, Alistair was named 
the National Geographic Adventurer of the Year for redefining how we see adventure. I was really nervous that by doing a year of micro adventures, that my brief beginning career as an adventurer was going to be doomed. So I definitely was nervous about that. I was also very worried what my adventure peers would say. Exactly that, like, what are you doing? Sleeping on a hill and calling yourself an adventurer—that is pathetic. So I was, I was very worried about what people would think about me, right?、Uh, which is a bit pathetic, and also for my own self-respect. And so getting that National Geographic award, well, first was just. Completely surprised me and amazed me that it's the sort of thing they were interested in. But also, it was really good for my self-respect of thinking, "Hang on, yeah, this is fine. This is an okay thing to do. I should pursue it more and start shouting about it more confidently." So, the micro adventures has just came and it stayed, and since then it's grown. There's now just in the UK there are over forty regional. Facebook groups of people who do micro adventures within the region they live, who can kind of help each other and encourage each other and share ideas and meet up if they choose to do so. Alistair's success encouraged him to try another idea, one that to even the most seasoned adventurer might sound truly terrifying. Then I started to think, what is adventure and what is living adventurously? Story coming up after the break. Microadventures encapsulated what Alistair loved about his bigger exploits. He got to push his personal limits while interacting with strangers, and this gave him an idea. Alistair wanted to redefine what adventure actually meant to him. To do this, he drew inspiration from his favorite book, "As I Walked Out One Midsummer Morning." The book is about this young British guy in the 1930s who sets out from his home one midsummer morning to go have his first adventure, like young people have always wanted to do, and he ends up walking through Spain, playing his violin to pay his way. He's never been abroad before, never been on an adventure, and the book he writes about Spain is beautiful. It's a very simple adventure: playing his violin to earn money, sleeping on hilltops, wandering around, talking to people, and he writes very beautifully. And ever since I read that book when I was a student, I thought to myself, I'd love to go do that trip. That would be a wonderful journey to go recreate myself. And then as years passed, I kept reading the book, and then I started thinking, I'd love to go and make a film about that, or I'd love to go and write a book about that. But I can't play the violin or any other musical instrument. And actually, probably the nearest I have to some. Phobic terror in life is the thought of having to do musical performance. You know, if I had to <laughs> sing a solo or ka karaoke、uh -huh. or dancing in public, these these are my ideas of total hell. Yeah.、And、therefore, the thought of playing my violin to earn money just terrified me. And therefore, for years, I did nothing about it and went off and did other stuff like. Rowing across the Atlantic Ocean and cycling around the world and blah blah blah. <laughs> I'm too afraid to play music in public, so I guess I'll just row across the ocean. <laughs> well, twenty years ago, I could have given you a very simple answer about excitement and risk and fear of failure and the unknown and all that kind of typical adventure stuff. But I've been doing that sort of thing for so long now. You know, cycling a long way and walking across countries. I've done that so much that. I'm kind of good at that, and in my own weird way, I realised I was sort of in my comfort zone and in a bit of a rut. And 
Therefore, I didn't get sensations from that as much as I used to. So I started to think, if I somehow want to get excitement and risk and fear of failure and uncertainty and to live adventurously again, then what I really need to do to scare myself is learn the violin. And so I emailed a violin teacher and I said, hey, I've had this idea. Please, can you teach me the violin? We've got seven months. I want to walk through Spain for a month without any money or credit card. Please, can you teach me the violin so that I don't starve to death? I'm not alone in thinking that having to stand up and perform in public is terrifying. So mm -hmm. the only sensible option was for me to postpone the trip for a couple of years or at least take my credit card and wallet along. Uh But I thought to myself, come on, I've just got to do this. So I just decided to do the non-sensible thing, which was to book a cheap flight to Spain and begin. So I turned up in Spain with my violin, my hiking gear, and with no money at all. And I've had a month to try and make it 500 miles as far as Madrid, following in Laurie Lee's route. Alistair followed the same roundabout route described in the book, walking from Vigo to Madrid and stopping in Zamora and Toledo, walking along the Guadalquivir River and the coast, and then spending some time in Tarifa and Algeciras. But luckily, Alistair didn't have to contend with burning churches and militia and war like the book's hero, Lori Lee, did. So the first morning, I stood up in this town square in Vigo, a town in northwestern Spain, Uh got out my violin. It's the first time I'd ever played. And going back to fear, I realized that the fear I felt in that moment, I hadn't felt that way since I tried to row across the Atlantic Ocean years ago. What happened? How did it go? Well, it went terribly. Well, <laughs> have you ever heard a kid playing the violin? I it's, have. It sounds like a like a cat being strangled. Yeah. I was I was amazed at how hard the violin is to learn and how terrible I was at it. And even though I I practiced for an hour every day in my little shed for 7 months, I was still absolutely terrible. <laughs> it seems incredible to me because I've seen the footage of you playing your violin and I'm not very good am I you're not I'm sorry to t- <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry to tell you I'll say this you're better than I am at the violin that's for sure well eventually after several hours and me just wanting to just punch myself in the face for this being the most stupid idea of my entire life and just <laughs> desperately wishing that I could go home and hide and thinking what have I done Eventually, a gentleman, an old gentleman, gave me a coin. In that moment, everything changed. Once he'd given me a coin, suddenly my heart was just filled with excitement and hope and optimism. And you know, if you've been given one coin, then there's a chance you might get another. So now, in my head, it was all different. I was now a professional musician. <laughs> I'd been paid for my music, and suddenly the whole trip felt possible. Right. And that then was the beginning of a absolutely joyful month of walking through the mountains, sleeping outside, cooking on fires, all the stuff that normal people would call adventure. The experience of, of busking, of playing the violin in public was absolutely terrifying. I'd, I'd never done it before I started. I didn't want any practice before I went. I wanted just full immersion, full terror, full vulnerability. Those are kind of vulnerabilities you have when you're a five-year-old in elementary school. I realised linger on as a grown man in his 30s. So it was a terrifying, humiliating, embarrassing, ridiculous experience. But eventually, 
dropping down from the hills every day or two into a small little village, standing up in the plaza in front of a handful of people and saying to the world, here I am, this is my best shot and trying my best with a violin <laughs> in order to earn enough money for a loaf of bread. So in that sense, it felt like one of the most adventurous things I've ever done in my life, even though it was just a small little walk in Spain and the sort of thing that tough guy adventurers would turn their nose up and say, huh, that's not a real adventure. To me, it felt like one of the biggest adventures of my life. What do you think the importance of breaking through that that inner voice of doubt, that self-doubt, what's the importance of that? I think I've spent now, gosh, 18, 19 years trying to break through the self-doubt and that voice. And I, you know, before I set off to cycle around the world, one of the reasons I did so was because I didn't, I just, I wasn't very confident in life. I never really felt I'd achieved anything or done anything very interesting. I just felt really ordinary and I was really jealous of people just doing stuff and I read all these books of big journeys and I think ah oh, that's just amazing but I can't do you know people like me don't do that and so now over many years I've now built up this habit of through experience of realizing that it's always worth it it's always feels good afterwards and so this this sort of notion of scaring myself beginning and being grateful for it has just become a big mantra for my life really during his month-long trip, Alistair did make a bit of money, about 120 euro, that's roughly four bucks a day. He played the Muppet song, the opening to Thunder Road by Springsteen, the boss, baby, Guantanamera, and a few 20-second clips from other tunes. Because 20 seconds is all he knew. This wasn't a huge set list, but it was enough to keep him and others smiling. And really, it wasn't about the music. For Alistair, busking in Spain was about meeting new people, being exposed to new ideas, and changing how he saw adventure. The Spain trip really cemented for me that what adventure is mostly about is the, the attitude with which you approach each day. So trying to dare yourself to do things that are new and different and a little bit difficult and a little bit scary and looking for the wilderness, looking for the adventure, looking for the trees to climb and the opportunities rather than just keeping your head down, trundling away, bored, until the weekend gives you a chance to escape. I think curiosity is the key ingredient to travel. So cycling around the world or walking yeah. across India, that yeah. is fully an exercise in curiosity. And if you start to try and incorporate curiosity into your daily life, then that's a, a big thing. And I've, I've definitely got that out, learned to do that more regularly out of the adventures that I've done. Mm -hmm. Do you know Alex Honnold climbing in Yosemite or people skiing to the South Pole or mountaineers doing epic stuff? Those are the things that filter into the wider mainstream community. And there are huge numbers of people in the mainstream world who see these things but don't see the smaller, more accessible things like the grannies and granddads who know how to where the local hiking trails are. All they see is Alex Honnolds, they think, oh, that's not for me. And then there's the there's the social media portrayal of adventure, which suggests that if you don't have an amazing van and some big muscles and tattoos, that you're therefore not a suitable person to go into the outdoors. So I think then there's a, there's that sort of perception of who belongs. Um, the next stage, I think that for people who are wanting to do it, quite often they look and the sort of people who do it are... Well, it's becoming much more male and female. I think that's changing massively, but it's still very much white, middle class 
people going to do this sort of thing. So one huge failure I've felt with all of my micro adventure attempts is is any attempt to get young urban people to get out and go connect with nature. And I think the reason I've completely failed with that is that young people living in a city have no idea to discover somebody like me uh-huh. on the internet and therefore can't even become interested in the idea of going off to do these adventures. So I think there are huge numbers of barriers uh, in all sorts of different directions and I suppose that's why micro adventures have been successful is because they are trying to bridge this gap between people who've never done anything and then the people who are the really hardcore epic ones. Yeah. Who needs the story of yet another adventurer me going off on a tiny little adventure is far, far more interesting if I can retweet somebody else's story, even if it's got rubbish pictures and he hasn't got a cool bike, of someone getting on the train out of London with their bike to go do something at the weekend. That That's the way that's going to really resonate with people. I think that trying to have adventures, be in the outdoors and live adventurously can make, well, certainly it makes me feel happier and i don't feel that that's something we should underestimate you go off do an adventure come back happier and refreshed and therefore hopefully better place to do your job better or to be a better partner or father or parents and to just put you in a good place for the for the rest of real life i think what do you think your your big adventures and your your small adventures are teaching your kids oh <laughs> uh, gosh um well One of the reasons I wanted to go to Spain was to try to show my kids that I really value the three things, being wild, being bold and being curious. And I think you can try and teach kids that through... Uh, my daughter's in the brownies, like the uh, the girl guides, the little girl guides. And I was I was the assistant leader yesterday, teaching them for the first time how to light a fire. But the way we did that is just by giving them a box of matches and say, off you go. And of course, it was total <laughs> chaos. A bunch of seven-year-old girls being very noisy. The only thing that you could be sure of was they were not going to burn down the forest. Right. Uh, but it was wonderful just saying, off you go, go rampage through the woods and we'll try to figure this out. And I think that is a far more useful education than most of the stuff they get by sitting in a classroom, learning their times tables for 15 years. What do you think is scarier, playing your violin in Spain or watching your daughter run around the woods with a a book of matches? (laughs) Well, having seen my daughter's firelighting skills, I can say the only danger with her in a box of matches is that she might poke her eye out. So I think uh, (laughs) I think that uh, I think that playing the violin is a considerably more dangerous experience. How do we live adventurously without going on adventures? by daring ourselves to try things every day that are new and difficult and scary and unconventional and eccentric and to be curious more and to do things in do normal things in different ways whether that's your commute to work or the uh, grocery shop you buy it from go to the random little Ethiopian store down the road and say to the guy in there hey I've never cooked Ethiopian food Give me the ingredients. And then you're having a travel experience without leaving your hometown. So I think really it comes down to the attitude and the enthusiasm that you charge at each day with. You 
You've been listening to Safety Third. Our guest today was Alistair Humphreys. And to learn more about what he's doing, go ahead and check out his Instagram at al underscore Humphreys or visit his website, alistairhumphreys.com. If you like today's show, then please spread the word like you're spreading mayo on a party sub. You know, Safety Third is kind of like a 12-foot long sandwich. Sure, you can handle it just fine on your own, but wouldn't you feel better with some pals digging in with you? You know you would. So, snag your hungry crew and dig into S3 together. Don't forget napkins. It may get messy. Tell your friends and fam about the show. And if you have an idea for a guest, send us an email at hello at safetythirdpodcast.com. You can find us on Instagram at safetythird underscore podcast and on the old interwebs at safetythirdpodcast.com. Safety Third is produced by Elizabeth Nakano. Cordelia Zars edited this episode. Additional production help from Thisanka Sarapala. Music by my big brother, Brendan. I'm an adult, but I don't make my bed, O'Connell. Art direction by Anya Millerberg. Fitz Cahal is our creative director. Becca Cahal is our executive producer. And I'm your host, Patty O'Connell. Okie dokie, my friends. Until next time, keep it tight, keep it loose, and remember, safety third. Thank you.